Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Thanks for joining us today on our program, Vaccine Delays. We're not receiving any Pfizer-BioNTech doses this week. And our allocations in the next two weeks will remain lower than what we had originally anticipated. We learned yesterday that there will be a delay affecting many countries, including Canada, for the next shipment of the Moderna vaccine. Will Canada still be able to hit its vaccine targets with new delays on both vaccines and new protocols about doses? Are provinces getting enough vaccine and enough information to get the job done? Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole joins us with his view on this. We'll also hear from the Saskatchewan Premier, Scott Moe. Then, travel restrictions. The government and Canada's main airlines have agreed to suspend service to sun destinations right away. Flights to sun destinations, the Caribbean and Mexico, grounded. Hotel quarantines for people coming home. It could cost you up to $2,000. Too tough or too little too late. And why not Florida? We'll find out when the Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra joins us on that. Then, the next hope. I'm pleading and begging Health Canada, uh, please uh, get AstraZeneca approved. The EU gives the green light to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. How soon will it come here? And how did the UK build up its capacity to produce vaccines so much more quickly than Canada? Did Canada miss a huge opportunity? We have an exclusive interview with the man who oversaw the development of that vaccine, Sir John Bell. All that, plus the Scrum will weigh in on the political fallout of the stunning report on the toxic culture inside Rideau Hall that led to the resignation of Julie Payette. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. This week, Canada will face new vaccine shortages. The shipment of the Moderna vaccine will be only 78% of what Canada expected. The Pfizer allocations are also severely curtailed due to the retooling of the plant in Belgium. That's where Canada gets these precious medicines. This is all layered on top of confusion from Pfizer on dosage use. Canada uses five doses per vial. Pfizer says, no, you should use six doses per vial. Now that would require new and smaller syringes. Canada has ordered 40 million of them. They haven't arrived yet. Will all these delays mean Canada will not hit its vaccine targets? The government insists no, that the doses will all arrive on time, but how sure can the provinces be on that? And will the export controls from the EU pose further dangers to Canada's supply? We asked the Procurement Minister, Anita Anand, to join us. We also asked the Health Minister to join us to get some answers for you. Both said they were unavailable. So to get some or more answers and some reaction to that and the travel restrictions announced by the government, we're joined by the leader of the official opposition, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole, good morning. Great to have you on the program. Uh, let's start with vaccines if we can. The Liberals insist that the vaccine targets will be met despite all those concerns that I listed. What are your concerns? I don't see how they can make the targets they've been talking about for weeks when each week the, the vaccine number keeps diminishing. We have to, according to their, their target of September, vaccinate 30 million Canadians, you know, over 18. To do that, we need to be doing 2 million or so per, per week. The provinces are ready. This week, we're receiving zero. There seems to be a confusion around the government and they won't release the contract. So we don't know if they had options or best efforts or, or the companies pledged certain numbers but didn't have to hold to them. It's true, Canada has posted n no contracts. Other countries like the US have posted some. I should tell people these are not the full contracts. They have details but they're not everything. But the CEOs 
of Pfizer and Moderna and even the president of the EU all called Canada to say, don't worry, Prime Minister Trudeau, you will get your doses by March. Now, they'll be backloaded. Does that reassure you when the CEOs are saying we're going to meet our deadlines? Don't worry about it. I know the companies, I know everyone's trying to do their best here, Evan, but we lost months when the Trudeau government partnered with China. We didn't have the regulatory approval uh, process in place for the mRNA vaccine, and we didn't try and make uh, one of the vaccines here in Canada. That really is holding us up. You mentioned the syringes. They didn't even order those until sometime in November, despite the fact that they knew it was required for this type of a vaccine. So they're always several steps behind. There's no leadership from the Prime Minister on this crisis. Look, the Liberals are going to push back and say, Mr. O'Toole said that we were slow in the approvals. We were the second country to get the approval and get the Pfizer vaccine. We made sure that, yes, that the CanSino thing was a total bust, but we followed advice and we got seven other companies to deliver us vaccines. What do you say to that when, look, as I've asked them, they've got big volume, but obviously they didn't order special delivery on them. But they did get out the door early. Is it their fault that there's a global shortage and these companies just are not able to produce the vaccines and provide the full allotments? That's the lesson they should have learned from the first wave of the pandemic, Evan. Last March, April, when we saw countries hoarding PPE, medical supplies, planes not leaving tarmacs, did they think it was going to be better with the vaccine. That's why we should have built a capacity here. We have a facility, an NRC facility in the Montreal area that could have done that. Why wasn't that the priority? And we were months late in terms of getting the process in place for an mRNA vaccine. And here's the kicker. Why aren't they releasing the contracts? Because we don't know what they say. I appreciate you. I want to see the contracts too. And I know they're, they're and you're a, a lawyer, so you appreciate they're not going to release everything, but they could release a lot more. What would that tell you? Would that just give you the assurance that if there is a production shortage at the Belgian plant, they are still obligated to hit the March deadline? Now, they've promised that. We haven't seen it in writing. They all say that's going to happen. Why would that be so reassuring for you? Because then we can plan. Uh, they have a general, Major General Fortin, an outstanding leader. You can see he doesn't even have the numbers on a daily basis. And why is there this opaque secrecy around it? Let people know, okay, I'm in this demographic group. I likely will get vaccinated in late February or March. When will we get our seniors, our long-term care homes completely done from coast to coast? The EU president, uh, the EU is putting export controls on. They're concerned about their supply. but. Prime Minister said, I was reassured in talking to the EU president that those won't apply to Canada. Do you buy that? I read the readout of his call with Ms. van der Leyen. I did not see that clear assurance. And if we learned anything from the first wave of the pandemic, Evan, is even at that point, our closest friend and ally, the U.S., was trying to hold back some supply of PPE. So I would like to see a clearer statement that a country like Canada will not have our, our, our exports controlled at one of the borders in, in the EU. No travel to the Caribbean, no travel to Mexico. Uh, there's new travel restrictions. Other travelers will be forced to quarantine in a government hotel for three days. They've got to get tested. It's, it's at their own expense, up to two grand. Uh, is this too little, too late, or is this too tough on the airline industries? Where do you land on this? Well, I'd like to see the use of rapid tests here. I mean, you know, since last fall, we've been talking about that tool that allows really quick results uh, that allow us to make quarantine times 
shorter in some cases, five to seven days or what some other countries are looking at using rapid tests. If the government had rolled out this national approach as we had been pushing for last fall, we could have maybe lowered that. Last question though, uh, the, the report on the governor general, toxic, harassing, the allegations are pretty shocking. Uh, it led to her resignation. Justin Trudeau bypassed the independent committee to select her. It was, she was his specific choice. You want the opposition to be involved in choosing the next governor general. Why not take the politics out and go back to an arm's length committee so none of you elected politicians have a say? Great idea, Evan. In fact, we proposed this in the House of Commons this week. We sent details on our motion to all parties two days ahead of our vote. And the Liberals voted down, returning to that independent committee that gave us David Johnson a tremendous, gave us Elizabeth Dodswell tremendous vice regal appointments. Why sully the next appointment after what's happened uh, with the last one in a minority parliament where the prime minister is every day posturing that he might walk to the governor general. I think he's in a conflict of interest personally. He owns the, the mistake last time, the, the no verification. He clearly had a meeting with her where he asked her to resign. He hasn't told us the full story there as well. I think he owes it to that important institution to have it done independently because it's important to our constitution, to oh, our parliamentary democracy, to, to our military. Oh, that's interesting. So you say it's a conflict of interest because it's a minority parliament. We could have an election over the next budget. So you think if it's not independently selected, that could, he's, the perception could be his thumb, he's got his thumb on the scale? Well, we've read for weeks now, Evan, and you've talked about the, the, the rumors of an election, Mr. Trudeau told the Liberal Party, they're preparing, uh, they're posturing. I, I think it's inappropriate when there's curfews and, and lockdowns, but he's pushing towards that, and he will likely have to go to the Governor General. Should he be picking someone just a few days or weeks before that, after what happened with his last appointment? So get this right, you know, this should not be politicized by Mr. Trudeau and his PMO to, to, to help him out. And, it, and it's unfair to the next person that's chosen. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Mr. Trudeau, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Evan. All right, coming up, too tough or too little, too late. Canada announces new travel restrictions, mandatory hotel quarantines, arrival tests. Is this enough to stop the COVID variants from entering the country? And with flights grounded to sun destinations, why weren't Florida and Hawaii on that list? We'll find out next with the Transport Minister, Omar Al-Gabra. Stay right here with Question Period. We have urged Canadians and, and told them now is not the time to travel. And unfortunately, some of them are making the choice um, to engage in, in, in non-essential travel. Um, we think that it's, therefore, if they're going to make that choice, that they should bear the full cost and responsibility of all the measures that are necessary to keep Canadians safe as a result of the choices that they made. Grounded. No travel to the Caribbean. No travel to Mexico as of today as Canada institutes new travel restrictions. Those restrictions will last until the end of April. Travelers who actually now come back to Canada from other destinations will have to land in only four airports. Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. Once on the ground, they will be forced to quarantine in a government-mandated hotel for three days at their own expense, could be up to $2,000. There they will be tested. If they test positive for COVID, they go to another government location for quarantine. And if negative, they go home and follow the protocols there. Is all this too little too late? Why no stoppage of travel to other popular destinations like Florida or Arizona? 
Let's find out. Joining us now is the Transport Minister, Omar Al-Gabra. Uh, first of all, congrats on your new appointment, Minister. Um, your government knew the second wave was coming months and months ago, and yet you didn't impose these new restrictions on travel before the Christmas holiday break, the New Year break. Another key time. That led to a spike in cases. Now you're doing it now. Uh, did you? Why not earlier? Why now? Uh, first of all, Evan, it's good to be uh, back on your show. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, look, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been guided by public health advice, by consulting experts, by assessing circumstances that we're in. And from the beginning, we've actually advised Canadians to cancel all their non-essential travels since March of last year. We've also imposed a 14-day quarantine since March of last year. Uh, we've uh, also uh, banned non-citizens uh, and non-permanent residents to come to Canada. And obviously, throughout the pandemic, throughout the developments of the first wave, second wave, we've reassessed, we've changed, we've modified a lot of these rules. And at the beginning of the year, of this year, we've imposed an additional measure, which is pre-departure testing. So any arrival to Canada has to get a negative COVID test before they're able to board a plane. I get it. Why the incrementalism, Minister? I, I, you keep doing it, but the cases, you know, the incrementalism has not stopped the case counts. It has not stopped the arrival of the first variant. I know you, your government keeps saying you're listening to medical advice, but Australia imposed the hotel quarantine in March of last year. So did South Korea. New Zealand did it in April. Those countries have had significantly better COVID outcomes than Canada. So is by putting it on finally now at the end of January, uh, is that an admission that Canada should have done this earlier? No, no, Evan, it's uh, the opposite. Canada has already some of the strict, strictest rules for, uh, for travelers. Uh, Australia and New Zealand have different circumstances, different geographical consideration. What we're doing here is we're adding additional measures because we're heading towards a vacation season. We want to remind Canadians uh, that we are advising them strongly against any non-essential travel, against right. vacations. So we're adding extra measures. I understand that, but we just came through a travel season at the, the New Year's and the Christmas break. We didn't have that. Now we've got the arrival of new strains. They must have come from overseas. So the question is, why now? And if you're going to do stop destinations like Mexico and the Caribbean, why not Florida, Hawaii, Arizona? Also, what happened to those? Okay, so Evan, look, we, first of all, Christmas, we did not have the issue of variants at the time. These are uh, new developments that just arise. And we were hopeful, look, Ideally, we would have a neat answer that applies to everything, but it was impossible. We looked at banning all flights, and that would have a massive impact on our logistical system, on our essential travel. We looked at uh, uh, doing other measures, and what we ended up doing is customizing uh, options here and there to make sure that we addresses most of the issues. And, and the Caribbean and Mexico is where most uh, Canadian travelers go on vacation. But we're asking our Canadians to cancel all vacations, not just the Caribbeans, not just to Mexico. And we're in middle of discussions with the U.S. on even strengthening measures uh, between us and the U.S. So for border crossers, whether they're land crossers or uh, 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 airline crossers. And we've also streamlined the airports. You mentioned it in your introductory. 
Now we're only allowing international flights to land at the four major uh, airports so we can deal with the arrivals through testing and quarantine. Right. Let me get to the cost. $2,000 for three days in these hotels. Can you give us any details? Where are these hotels that, that people will have to stay? Who's paying the workers to work there in under potentially uh, dangerous circumstances? And are other people, are other people allowed to stay in these hotels? Can you give us some detail? So public health is the lead on the implementation of this measure. This was based on their advice. Uh, the reason why the number uh, est uh, uh, estimated has been mentioned is because it includes additional costs other than just staying in a hotel. It includes uh, health measures, it includes security measures. So those are, uh, those are uh, uh, ballpark figures. Uh, and as we uh, get closer into the implementation in the coming weeks, we will have a much more accurate assessment uh, uh, of the dollar figure and exact locations. Just finally, is your government compensating the major airlines for taking these measures? Is there going to be an airline package for them? So let me just uh, uh, acknowledge that the airline has been the hardest hit sector of our industry. Airline sector is, and the aviation sector is extremely important for our economy, for our security. And uh, I want to also acknowledge the, the sacrifice of the aviation employees uh, how helpful and how committed and dedicated they've been and how negatively impacted they've been by COVID. Last November, we had agreed to enter into negotiations with the major airlines in Canada to discuss uh, some kind of a, a financial assistance package. Now, I acknowledge that these new measures are going to add an extra burden, so that will be part of the consideration, uh, and there's a greater sense of urgency to come up with some type of support. Minister, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Evan. Coming up, why is Canada still not giving the green light to the AstraZeneca vaccine as the EU, the UK, and other countries have done? And why was the UK able to vaccinate so many more people than Canada so quickly? Is it because they built up their domestic capacity? Well, the man who has overseen the development of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, Sir John Bell, gives us new details on that that you don't want to miss. He's up next. Stay right here with Question Period. It's a real pleasure to be here and to announce the third positive opinion for the authorization of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. This expands the range of vaccines available to EU and EEA member states, uh, which will all help to bring the pandemic under control and protect the citizens of the EU. So it's the next great vaccine hope, but it's one shrouded in controversy suddenly. The AstraZeneca vaccine regulators in the EU have just approved it on Friday for adults above the age of 18. Now concerns have emerged there that it was not tested enough on people over 65. Canada has ordered 20 million doses of AstraZeneca. The Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, has pleaded with Health Canada, approve it now. And Minister Dominic LeBlanc has said it could be weeks away, but so far we haven't seen it. If it does arrive, could it accelerate Canada's timeline for vaccinations? And what are the concerns here? Let's find out. Joining me now is the man who oversaw the development of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the Regis Professor of Medicine at the University of Oxford, Sir John Bell. Welcome to the program. The EU approved AstraZeneca. You're using it. Uh, Brazil, um, the UK, India, Mexico. Canada has not. Um, 
what are the concerns from the Canada point of view, and, and how quickly could this vaccine be approved and put into use in Canada? Well, I, I think that the data is the data. It's the same data that the MHRA approved uh, the vaccine in December and the EMA approved it today. So it, it, it is what it is. It's, a, I think, a pretty persuasive package. It's a very safe vaccine, and it's, effect, and it's very effective. And I think countries just need to decide at what pace they want to approve it. The great push in UK vaccination has come from having the AstraZeneca vaccine available and uh, it allows you to vaccinate loads of people. So we're vaccinating about 200, 200 people a minute in the UK. 200 people a minute, which is astonishing. And this is what is driving some Canadians crazy. We're, we're falling, falling behind and we haven't approved AstraZeneca, but there are concerns out of Germany, like it's only for people over the age of 18. Germany said it won't recommend using the jab for people over the age of 65. They say there was a lack of evidence of the efficacy on elderly people. Are these valid concerns about AstraZeneca? Well, I, I think every regulator's got to make their own decisions, and I, I wouldn't be so presumptive as to step into that space. But, you know, the MHRA is a very credible regulator. It's probably the most established and experienced regulator in Europe. The reality is we're making a lot of decisions based on less than 100% perfect data. And the reason is, in case people hadn't spotted it, we're in a pandemic. And so what you have to do, first of all, is be sure these vaccines are completely safe. And then make your best judgment about where and how they're going to be effective. And the, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been into fewer elderly people than the other vaccines because we started earlier and we were being very careful about potential safety signals. But there is a wealth of immunogenicity data that shows that it produces just the same immune response in elderly people as it does in everybody else. And so it's hard to imagine that you wouldn't use it in the people who are most vulnerable, given the fact there's really quite compelling evidence that it's going to be as good in a 75-year-old as it will be in a 25-year-old. Now, I know you've got relatives in Canada. Are you surprised that Canada has been so slow off the mark on this and that we've that Canada, compared to the UK, has vaccinated comparatively so, so many fewer people per capita? If you take the UK or Israel as this kind of gold standard, you guys are well behind. But a lot of that will depend on which vaccines you have available and what your organizational capacity to get them into people is. So I think, again, to make the point, there's nothing wrong with the MRA vaccines. In fact, they're very, very good vaccines. But having deployable, you know, the qualities of a really good vaccine are not just the top-line efficacy signal. It's also, can you use them? Can you get them out the door quickly? Are they safe? what's the durability of the immune response, all that stuff. And, and, and those are all key elements. And AstraZeneca, I think, is pretty good in all those. I'm not going to pretend it's the best vaccine because I don't think anybody knows what the best vaccine is. The big concern is supply. Supply, supply, there's political pressure. Australia is manufacturing the AstraZeneca vaccine themselves. Uh, Canada won't be doing that. But how quickly could a country like Canada get a license and scale up production to guarantee there could be supply of AstraZeneca, which, by the way, supply has been at the center of the big debate with the EU on it. Is that possible? Could Canada have licensed it and produced it domestically? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not quite sure what facilities you've got to produce it domestically, but 
you know, if you take the UK, the UK started this crisis with very close to zero vaccine manufacturing capabilities. And we've built it during the course of the last nine, 10 months. So we're, we now are making a lot of AstraZeneca vaccine. The Novavax facility, which is the most recent uh, vaccine to report very positive data, uh, that's being made in, um, in Stockton. Uh, we, we've now got significant capacity to make our own vaccines onshore. And we took that decision last spring to make sure that we actually had that capability. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're hitting on something Canadians need to hear because domestic supply has been a big issue here. Um, and, and here we see the UK, you have more supply, you're producing uh, all sorts of different vaccines there. And you're saying you didn't really have the capacity to do that domestically a year ago. What did the UK do differently a year ago to prepare for this vaccination process than say Canada? Well, we, well, of course, we had the pressure because we knew we were likely to have a domestic vaccine in the form of the Oxford vaccine, which, as you know, uh, was developed in January, February before the pandemic hit and was the first vaccine in clinical trials at the beginning of April. So there was a real imperative to make sure that we didn't end up discovering and developing a vaccine and then couldn't make it. So the, the government, the, there was actually a funded project to build a vaccine manufacturing facility but they hadn't started the project yet. So what they did was they repurposed a couple of rather good manufacturing facilities elsewhere in the country. Uh, one at a, a biotech company called Oxford Biomedica, another one at a CDMO called Cobra. And they repurposed those, they transferred the technology to them, they learned how to scale up. They went through all the hard yards it takes to become a manufacturing facility. So. Uh, that you know, we we started from nothing, and we're now pretty pleased that we're in pretty good shape. Um, lots of other countries decided that they would rely on others, and that perhaps has not proved to be the right strategy. That's fascinating. In other words, Canada could have followed a similar trajectory, and here we are, end of January. We could looking at specifically the AstraZeneca, I know mRNA has different protocols, but Canada could have established a domestic supply. That's what you're saying. If we got the license for AstraZeneca, for example, which other countries have got, potentially we could be producing it ourselves. So the, the conditions of the deal that we as the university did with AstraZeneca were only twofold. One is that it, was need, it needed to be sold at cost during the pandemic. So AstraZeneca are giving that vaccine away for free to be clear, well, not for free, for cost, but they're not making any money on it. And the second one was that we wanted AstraZeneca to really lean in to the global production of that vaccine at the highest scale that they could get to. And so to date, they've licensed 13 different countries to produce the vaccine. Some of them have gone fast and produced it really efficiently. Some have gone slow and they're having more trouble. But the truth is they're out there attempting and developing the processes to make more vaccine because the world does not have enough vaccine. We need more vaccine. And the best way to do that is to expand the number of platforms. And AstraZeneca, you know, at full tilt, will be able to produce 3.2 billion doses um, if all its facilities were running at full tilt. So, you know, they have made a real effort. And I think it's a shame they're getting beaten up for trying hard to service the world. Sir John Bell, I just got to tell you, listening to you, I got, I'm shaking my head. 
13 countries producing it. We need to produce more of it. We need more quickly. But Canada could have and chose not to. Again, I'm just asking your view because you know our country and you were in charge of that development. Does that have you shaking your head as a, as a miss? Well, I, look, I, I'm not going to get into a discussion about whether you guys did the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, the reality is you don't have enough vaccine. Uh, you, you know, you need to get on with it. And, you know, it wouldn't hurt if you approved the AstraZeneca vaccine and started injecting people. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that, that will increase your numbers pretty dramatically. Yeah, I think you do need to think about your health security issues, about being able to manufacture onshore. You are overly dependent, in my view, on the U.S. of A. And although the current administration in the U.S., I think, will be more sympathetic. The previous administration was not going to give you a leg up on any of this stuff. So, you, you know, you do have to be independent and autonomous in your in these secure health security issues. All right, Sir John Bell, very interesting. Thanks for joining us. And what a striking contrast about domestic production. Let's just compare the UK to Canada because of their ramping up of domestic production. The UK has now vaccinated 12% of their population, 8 million vaccinations. Canada, 2.4% of our population, about 900,000 vaccinations. So a huge difference there. And because we don't have domestic production, more delays. First it was Pfizer. Now Moderna says shipments will be cut down to 78% of what was expected. The federal government says all this will not delay their vaccination goals, but do the provinces trust that? The scrum continues next and our special guest will be Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Stay right here with Question Period. zero doses of COVID-19 vaccines this week, even though other countries are getting plane loads of them. Last night, the Minister of Procurement said that Canada has the right to sue companies that break vaccine contracts with us. So is the Prime Minister planning on suing any company for failing to deliver much-needed vaccines to Canada, or did he negotiate such bad terms that he doesn't have a leg to stand on? Yes, there is a temporary disruption because they are uh, they are improving the the factory in Belgium that produces our vaccines. But within a few weeks, they'll be sending us more even than the hundreds of thousands we were receiving before, and we will be on track to fulfill all those responsibilities we laid out for Canadians. Confusion, delays, concern. It's all about the vaccine. On Friday, the Prime Minister announced that the supply of the Moderna vaccine will be cut this week to 78% of the expected supply. That comes on top of the sharp cut to the Pfizer vaccine supply. And then confusion about how many doses of Pfizer will Canada actually get in the end. Pfizer wants to switch the protocol to get six doses for every vial shipped. Health Canada has approved only five. Now to do the six, you need new syringes. So Canada has ordered 40 million more syringes to get those doses. When will they arrive? Will that mean more delays? The federal government says no. Everyone's still going to get uh, their vaccination by September and everything's going to hit their March target. But do the premiers at the front lines actually trust that? Is there some kind of communication breakdown between the federal government, the provinces, and the vaccine manufacturers? Let's bring in the scrum to talk about that. Joining us today, Avis Favreau is the CTV medical correspondent. Robert Benzie, the Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief, and our special guest this week is the Saskatchewan Premier, Scott Moe. Great, great to have everybody on the program today. Premier, let me start with you. Moderna delays, Pfizer delays, confusion about doses. Are you still confident 
that the federal government will be able to meet its targets uh, and get everybody vaccinated first by March and then by September? Well, that, that is a goal, and that is the first question that premiers have been asking, and I think Canadians have been asking, and that is, you know, how much vaccine are we going to be able to procure here in Canada? And the federal government, in fairness, has been answering that question as, 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 uh, with as much clarity as they can. You know, six million doses in the first quarter, and everyone will have access by September. The second uh, question that I've been asking and other Canadians is is a little bit more gray on on the information flow from the supplier to the federal government, and then ultimately to the provinces and the frontline health professionals. And that's when are we going to receive uh, the, the, these uh, these vaccine numbers? And it does make a difference uh, if we receive the majority of our first quarter allotment in in the month of the last month of the first quarter makes it much more challenging for healthcare providers in communities right across Canada to uh, provide the, the doses that we need to um, in, in these, these, in many cases, very rural and remote communities um, with all of the logistical challenges that both of these vaccines have. I follow the bouncing uh, needle here, eh, Benzi. Of course, in, in Ontario, retired General Hillier told me, and he's overseeing the rollout, look, Ontario doesn't have the syringes for the six-dose per vial. The switcher protocol could slow things down. He's even worried about that there's no guarantee you could extract six doses from every batch. What are the concerns where you are? Well, you know what, uh, Evan, Premier Doug Ford is echoing what Premier Scott Moe is saying. Um, there are deep concerns about the supply. I mean, we're competing with the whole world. And I think that's something that the federal government has, is getting its head around. And, and I think some Canadians, I haven't heard this from the, any of the premiers, but I think some Canadians are wondering how it is that a first world country like Canada is lagging behind other first world countries when it comes to bidding for these uh, vaccines. Did we, did we bid enough? I mean, we, we know that Israel... Uh, has had adequate supplies because they were very, very aggressive about getting them from uh, Moderna, from Pfizer, and ensuring that they paid top dollar to do that. Yeah, Avis, look, Canada has now fallen to 20, maybe 21st in terms of how many people it's vaccinated, so we're dropping down. Uh, given all these concerns about supply, should Canadians be still confident that these vaccine targets the government insists will be met can be met? Uh, well, I, you know, that is a good question. I mean, I think they set very clear targets. And as the other two have mentioned, we're dealing with suppliers who are now supplying the entire world basically with two, three vaccines. So there's a lot of people chasing scarce product. But I think what it really points out is the pickle that Canada got itself into when we got rid of domestic production of vaccines. Had we kept Connaught or some other domestic producer going, we would be in a really different situation now, Evan. Um, and, you know, we'd be in a lot more secure uh, supply. Right now, we're at the mercy of these companies who are going to say, yeah, you'll get it, you'll get it here and there. I tend to take the bigger approach, uh, the long game on this one. We may not get everybody vaccinated wave two here in the winter, but this coronavirus is going to be with us for a long time. So it's the long game. What, what about that switch? And, and I'll go back to Premier Mo. Like, are your medical teams able to extract every time six doses uh, per vial as Pfizer wants? I understand Ontario can sometimes, but not every time. I know you guys have been doing it in Saskatchewan. How confident are you if we switch the protocols there that we'll still get those four million doses, but out of maybe less vials? 
Well, we, we aren't able to at this point in time. We, we actually have uh, delivered 106% of the vaccines that we've received here in Saskatchewan. We've done that by extracting uh, that sixth dose out of about half of the vials uh, that arrive of the Pfizer shipments. So we are able to about half of the time. Maybe we can increase that to some degree um, with uh, some different equipments and different syringes. Um, but you know, what we see here to this point, and I agree with Avis on, on the domestic uh, uh, capacity, the production capacity, and we will have that, I think, in the next number of years, right out of Saskatoon, in Vito Intervac, and some others. But what we see here in, in the United States, for an example, is, is a different approach to this sixth dose. They're moving to changing the label for a sixth dose, but that is adding to the to the uh, supply that they will have. They're still receiving the same number of vials. In Canada, we're moving to potentially changing the label to get six doses out of these vials rather right. than five, but we're then we're going to receive less number of vials into Canada. And I think that's wherein lies the communication breakdown and possibly the challenge on the first question about how many doses are we going to receive in Canada. Uh, just let me quickly go back to you, Avis. AstraZeneca. Um, that's another hope. I mean, where are we in terms of uh, accelerating these timelines? Anita Nan, the Minister of Procurement, told me uh, late last week, if we get those other vaccines online, we can actually accelerate the targets. But are they close? Well, well you know, actually, Evan, I think that probably Canada will approve Johnson & Johnson before AstraZeneca. For some reason, there's a lot of clouds around the AstraZeneca and there are questions online about transparency of their data. This week, we heard that Germany is not going to prescribe it to anyone over 65. There's some questions about that. Um, and they have had the data and yet Canada hasn't approved it. That's a good question. Johnson & Johnson has been releasing its data and it is one dose, so you eliminate a lot of the, you know, where's the second dose and how do we do it in the supply chain? You don't have to do it with the cold storage of the uh, mRNA vaccine. So, I, you know, we will be getting more and I think things will speed up because Johnson & Johnson and Novavax, yeah. their data will be coming in in the coming months. So I, I do believe that the target of vaccinating most Canadians by September is realistic. It's just in the short term, the vaccines aren't going to save us because of the fits and starts of trying to deliver new vaccines in the middle of a pandemic. I just want to remind you, a year ago, we were still getting a name for COVID-19. Yeah. And here we are with all these vaccines and contenders. This is amazing. This is amazing. Never done before. And I think people have to just go, okay, everybody's doing their best and their fits and starts, but we want to get it right. We don't want to make mistakes on the delivery of a vaccine because they're going into people. Give us five. Great to have you on the program, Robert Benzie, and of course, our special guest this week, uh, Premier Scott Moe. Thanks to all three of you. Coming up, a toxic, poisonous workplace, damning report on how the former Governor General Julie Payette allegedly ran Rideau Hall. That led to her resignation. What's the political fallout, though, on the man who selected her, Justin Trudeau? And are the government's new travel restrictions to sun destinations too tough or too late? We'll pick all that up next with our special guest, Tom Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period. If they had done any sort of proper vetting, Justin Trudeau would have seen similar complaints about harassment or a toxic workplace in previous workplaces. So it really uh, highlights the, the failure on the part of Justin Trudeau to have done the right vetting and the real impact of that failure on the lives of these workers. A culture of fear, a reign of terror, toxic, 
harassment, screaming. These are just some of the descriptions of life at Rideau Hall during the tenure of the former Governor General Julie Payette. Now, these allegations came in a damning report released late last week. Now, these were not findings of fact, but they were enough to force the Governor General and her friend, the Principal Secretary Asunta De Lorenzo, to resign. So what's the political fallout of this on the Prime Minister? Talk about that and the government's new round of travel restrictions. The scrum is back. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Tonda McCharles is a senior reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is the CTV commentator and former leader of the NDP, Tom Mulcair. Great to see everyone. Tom, I'm going to start with you. What did you make of this uh, pretty extraordinary uh, report on the Governor General led to a resignation, all unprecedented, and where this leaves the Prime Minister politically? It's a devastating report, Evan. I mean, we're always going to use words like allegations because there is nothing proven. And there were no formal complaints up until that point. Let's get that part out of the way. But there's such a critical mass of corresponding information about the toxic atmosphere, belittling people, getting screamed at constantly. Nobody should have to put up with that in, in their place of work ever, but especially in this day and age. There's obviously a flaw in the system because they've all got collective agreements with every conceivable guarantee and nobody made that formal complaint. So now she's resigned, and uh, there are still people, you know, with their uh, pitchforks and their, their torches saying, oh, now let's take away her pension or this or that. I think at some point we've got to remember that piling on is a penalty in Canadian football. I also think that uh, Julie Payette has one valid point, and she was complaining in the papers today about the fact that her RCMP detail, according to the information that was there, apparently had spoken to the people carrying out this assessment of what had gone on. That is a fundamental error and whoever authorized that made a big mistake that is an unbelievable service i know them firsthand they're the gold standard they're absolutely amazing but they've compromised themselves and anybody else who'd be working with them in the future would say hey is somebody in this group gonna after that speak about what it was like working with me so i do think that that was a big mistake and she's right on that one uh tonda let me get your read by the way you can't there's no way to take away her pension but they could take away her perks right the travel perks that ggs get and other things what's your take on the political fallout Look, I think that there is political fallout because the selection of Julie Payette goes straight to the Prime Minister's judgment. Um, and if I'm to judge by the flood of email and replies that I've gotten, I mean, not only are people very concerned about it, you know, it seems to be fairly widespread in a lot of workplaces. So uh, I think one way that the, the Prime Minister ought to sort of move forward in his next choice is really to listen to the opposition about not getting their input, because that does inject politics yeah. into it, but about reverting to the independent selection process. I, I, ha I have to believe that had there been a better screening or someone had said, hey, have we checked her references? Some of this would have been, all of this would have been avoided. And that's what breaks my heart, the, uh, what the employees went through. Let me turn to travel restrictions. Uh, uh, the Liberals on Friday imposed uh, tougher travel restrictions. No sun destinations in the Caribbean or Mexico, but you can still go to Florida or Arizona. But if you do come back, you got to spend, uh, you got to go to a government mandated hotel. You got to spend three days at your own cost, up to 3,000 bucks. They're going to test you. You got to, if you're test positive, you got to go to yet another facility. Tom, too tough or 
too little too late. How is this going over? It's an excellent step in the right direction. And Mr. Trudeau listened to the provinces, which is a good thing. This is the most complex intergovernmental problem we've ever seen in Canadian history. So in the past couple of weeks, we've had the provinces telling the feds what to do at the airports. We've had the feds telling the provinces they want to set norms for long-term care centers for seniors. Everybody's in everybody else's bailiwick and jurisdiction. But here, Mr. Trudeau, much to his credit, listened. And I do think that there are still a few gaps in the system, but it's certainly a heck of a lot better from what we've had in the past little while. The spike after all the traveling at Christmas caused a lot of cases of COVID-19 and also a large number of deaths. This is what we're talking about, saving human lives. Yeah. The vaccines should be coming if, if, if the predictions are true. We should be just a couple of months away from having a pretty generalized immunization in the population. It's no time to fool around with traveling down south. People are irresponsible stop them they won't do it well, on their own stop them joyce what's your uh, read on all this well actually I, I don't think it's too little but i think it is too late um what what i see and what i'm taking away from this uh from the masks uh from testing uh from rapid tests is that we always seem to be months behind it and i think that what we have to do is probably try to stay a little bit more ahead of this now we know that some provinces are already talking about the third wave to, uh, on Friday, and I thought we I thought we were still in the second wave. And I mean, why why don't we just call it a wave? Because this the cases keep going up. So if the cases keep going up, what are we waiting for to put those rapid tests out there? What why why did we wait so long to put restrictions at the border? And you know, I understand uh, the supply chains. I understand that there are complex issues with the uh, you know Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, but, you know, a total ban sometimes on travel uh, can be a very healthy thing. Other countries have done it and their cases have dropped. So if people don't understand verbal messages, which they don't seem to understand because so many people traveled at Christmas, then perhaps they will understand bans because anyway, you can't go anywhere. Yeah. So what they're doing now is all fine and dandy. Look, I'm not criticizing them. And like Tonda, I remain optimistic because we have to remain hopeful and optimistic. But I think that we have to start thinking a little faster and acting a little faster and not waiting weeks and months and humming and hawing and consulting and, you know, sort of looking at old law books. Just do it. All right, got to leave it there. Tonda, Tom and Joyce, great to have you here. Thanks for being here. And thank all of you for joining us today. I'll see you tomorrow night at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV's Power Play on News Channel. And we will be back here on Question Period in seven short days. Take care. And if it's safe, hug your loved ones.